He saved others, let him save himself if he is the chosen one, the Christ of God, the Jewish authorities said. And the soldiers, if you are the Christ, save yourself. And the criminal, you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. Clearly, the understanding of Messiah, Christ, King, the roles, offices were all blended together. Clearly, the understanding of Messiah, Christ, King did not include defeat or death. Clearly, they did not understand it that way. Come down, and you might be true. Die, and that's the end of you. If that had been the end of Jesus, this gospel was it. He died on the cross, promised something he could not deliver. There's little question about the effect that he would have had, for we have historical accounts of many would-be messiahs. Take Simon Barjora, who led the Jewish revolt in 66 to 70 AD. The Roman Emperor Vespian sent his son Titus to deal with him. And boy, did he ever crushed him absolutely, as well as lowered the entire city of Jerusalem to the ground. Not a stone left upon another. You can still see this depicted in one of the victory arches in Rome, chiseled into stone. They drug Simon back to Rome and paraded him through the streets. The death penalty is what awaited such people as him. So they first scourged him, and when the announcement was made of his death, cheers went up from the streets, from the people, rejoicing. Sacrifices were then offered, and proclamations of Roman imperial victory, justice, and peace were issued. Now, imagine, imagine that Simon had a handful of followers who huddled together in a cave outside of Rome. Imagine one of them saying, well, he really is our Messiah. The other's thinking like you are thinking, that's craziness, he's dead. Or maybe, with great irony, what you say is true. He is our Messiah, he's dead, and so is our endeavor. So is our revolt. But say that one or two said, well, we've had a spiritual experience of Simon. Let's go into the whole world under pain of death, and proclaim that you too might be able to have a spiritual experience of Simon Barjora, who died a shameful death. It would be as likely for them as it would be for you and for me. It's craziness. You see, a shameful death does not equal being a Messiah. But the first Christians did precisely what you and I would never have done, nor did Simon's followers. Not having enough numbers for two centuries or so, 
even to conduct any sort of a thing worthy of the name of a riot, desiring to live a hidden life, not wanting to draw attention to themselves, but their worldview, which gave rise to a certain way of life, drew them inevitably into conflict with the Roman Empire. Because their message was so subversive. There is a real king, and Caesar is not him. And led to occasionally, and at times often, giving witness publicly, like Polycarp, who lived about a hundred years after Paul was drugged into trial and commanded under pain of death, which he ultimately suffered, to offer sacrifice to Caesar, proclaim him king, and that he is the son of God, which was his title. And Polycarp responded, how can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The message was so subversive. There is a king, and even the knees of Caesar should bow to him. Ultimately, Caesar has a part to play, but there's only so much authority that has been granted to him. The private individual rights that you and I enjoy originate in the activity of those first Christians, without which the encroachment of Caesar is absolute, which you and I are finding, are we not, in our day when the Christian way of life diminishes and everything becomes politicized. Politics become everything and everywhere. A shameful death does not equal being a Messiah. But if, as Paul said, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, then the verdict of the soldiers and the Jewish authorities have been overturned. He's a false Messiah. Look, you stupid followers. But if he's been raised from the dead, that has been overturned, reversed. He, in fact, is the Messiah, the promised one, the king. You see, God is faithful. He had created all that is in wisdom and in love. And he set human beings over all of creation to rule according to his wise and loving designs. But mankind, including you and I, prefer that we be king. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebelled. But God did not abandon them to their choices, but promised that a son of Eve would one day smash the evil serpent's head. To that end, he formed a family through Abraham and his faith, and from that small family, formed a nation and drew them out of slavery 450 years later, giving them right worship from which flowed a just way of living with one another, the commandments, so that you could be at peace when you possessed the land. They were to be the renewed humanity, light in a dark world, pointing to the one creator God. But the darkness that clung to everyone else clung to them too. No human being could be found to be light in the darkness. And so God, in a sense, was confronted with a question, a dilemma, 
A creator God, a good creator God, could not simply destroy his creation, that would be admitting a, a mistake. And he had already set parameters for the way in which he would set things right, make things new. That is, through a human being. But finding none, he himself became that human being. A son and a Jew who was faithful and an image of the renewed humanity, reconciling all of creation in his person so that no longer is there an unbridgeable chasm between creation and mankind and God who is goodness and truth and love itself and to whom we have been baptized, brought into, so that there might be reconciliation for us with God. But, as Jesus said, he treats us not as infants, but as friends. Friends are those who hold things in common. John Paul II, in a retreat that he gave to university students when he was still Archbishop in Krakow, he said, you know, maybe in the past, vocation has been principally identified with priesthood or with religious life. He said, but there is a renaissance, a recovering of the meaning of that word vocation of calling. He said, all of you have occupations like an engineer, a mechanic, a nurse, a teacher. That's your profession, but you also have a calling, a vocation in the midst of that. And he said, what does that mean? It means that in everything you do in your life by way of professional training and education and pursuit of your career must also contribute to some good God wants for the world for which Christ sacrificed himself. In your life as a lay person, you cannot ignore or neglect this dimension, but must enter into it. That's the image that was used in the psalm of judgment being, uh, seats being set up. Judges are the ones who help to set things right, to establish justice. That's your duty, he's saying. You have been brought into that kingdom. And if you desire to remain in that kingdom, collaborate with me in setting things right, making all things new. That's what our ear should have heard in the gospel with the word paradise. It sent us back to the beginning, to the garden, to the paradise there, and said, look, he's not going to destroy all things, but make all things new. Capture every thought and every event in your life and bend them back to the good. That's what he's saying. Hold them captive. Make them part of that kingdom those things that only you have access to in your mind, in your homes, in your heart, in your relationships. Which obviously has something to do with us here at JP2, where you encounter this message and are hopefully better equipped for carrying it through. Now, we as a parish community in a marvelous sense symbolize the whole dynamic 
of Christian history, which began with great joy at the resurrection. Oh my gosh. Death could not contain him. Wow, there's joy at beginning a new community. There's excitement involved in that and successes that came. But as the Christians face as well, it's not only joy, but it's hardship, it's challenge, it's sacrifice and disappointment. Some time of success followed by difficulties. The seats at the gym became harder and harder <laughs> to sit on. Things became harder to hear. It became a little bit less appealing. And then a pandemic, being kicked out of our place to gather together, having to travel all the way to Gardner, during which time many, many parishioners departed from us. And beloved pastor stepped away with courage, too. Difficulties, struggles, but there's new as well. Growth, activity, a new place, and new possibilities. One of the challenges that people first spoke with me about when I came here was about the the lay of the land. A few people came to me about that. Father, our land is the runoff for the entire neighborhood. Is that not going to be a problem? One family in particular approached me about it and said, we, we would be interested in pursuing the possibility of finding new land for you. Now, there could be some drawbacks to that, I suppose. We could have an emotional tie to the land that is ours. For those who've been here the full, what, six years, it could just be another change. We did spend about $100,000 in initial planning efforts. Certainly all that wouldn't go to waste, but benefits. The lay of the land over there was going to require, in 2018 dollars, about a million dollars worth of dirt work. Just 500,000 to get the school to the proper elevation. They were interested, could we find a better piece of land that would be level? And that could be a better size. Our land has shrunk just a little bit because of the improvements the city intends to make. As Father Riley, who many of you know, you know, is here and he basically runs the diocese, what would be the ideal size for a parish campus, and he said about three and a half acres more than you have. <laughs> but kind of the final key was, I wrote the bishop and said, okay, if this were to materialize, how would the sale of our land be handled? What would happen to that? And he said, whatever you would sell the land for, it could be deposited in your capital campaign account, which would be somewhere between one and a half to maybe two and a half million dollars. Now I ran this by the Finance Council, and as I think I can see at least on most of your faces, it's a no-brainer to pursue the possibility from the recovery of a lot of the site work 
to a larger campus, to selling the land and using that towards what we need to do. I underline, underscore that at this point it is a possibility, but I needed, I felt, to bring it up to you because as we investigate these potential tracts of land, it's just going to become public. And I also wanted you to know that we're not simply stalling on the campaign or forgotten about it and said, no, we're not going to build. But to ask you for your patience as we investigate this and to draw your attention to the straight line that exists from his resurrection to this extraordinary sacrifice that a family intends, would like to make because of belief in what he has done and the mission that we have been called to do, which I might, in closing, suggest to you. There are things that we cannot do and others can, but there are things that only you can do. Ask Christ, please, what it is that he is calling you to do and to work with him to make things new. Be patient after the first of the year. We'll have some opportunities, learning opportunities about building projects and such and pray for this possibility. And as soon as we have final details, uh, we'll certainly let you know. Um, in the meantime, we just have to see this as God obviously wants this to succeed. And he'll do it with our collaboration too.